Morning, everybody. Got kind of a small crew today. Wonder why. All right, well, let's open with prayer. As gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this day, this Lord's Day. We thank you for all of your blessings that you bestowed upon us in Christ and continue to bestow and will. And we praise you and thank you that uh, you've given us your word to guide us. And we ask you to uh, please bless our time in it this morning for your glory and for our good. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so I gave you homework, but I don't expect you to have <laughs> remembered. So uh, anyway, the idea was uh, we were uh, talking a little bit more about the hermeneutical differences, the principles of interpretation between uh, dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists, as they say, or for the most part, covenant theologians such as ourselves. And uh, I had a quote from Charles Ryrie. Uh, Based on the philosophy that God originated language for the purpose of communicating his message to man, and that he intended man to understand that message, literal interpretation seeks to interpret that message plainly. And then we saw how in the scriptures uh, the Lord tells, uh, tells Moses, uh, that uh, oftentimes he speaks to Moses face to face, but through the prophets he speaks, speaks obscurely through riddles. We saw that Peter says that oftentimes the prophets didn't understand the full import of what they were saying themselves. And uh, I pointed out that in the New Testament, or when it comes to the New Testament, dispensationalists are not uh, interpreting apostolic handling of prophecy plainly. Uh, they say, well, that's what they're saying, but what they mean is a little different. So that's not a plain read of the New Testament. So what I wanted to do quickly was uh, take us to Ephesians 3. Uh, before we move on to another quote of another dispensationalist writer and what he had to say about Amos 9. If you remember uh, last time we were talking about how Amos 9 says that uh, God will re rebuild the tents of David, uh, uh, referring to the, the house of Israel in that passage. And uh, we see that in uh, Acts chapter 15, the uh, Jerusalem council, uh, James interprets that passage as being uh, fulfilled by bringing the Gentiles into the tent of David. That's the rebuilding of it. And then we'll see uh, what uh, Robert Saucy, the dispensationalist theologian, has to say about that um, momentarily. But for now, Ephesians 3, uh, 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy spirit uh, to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit this mystery 
is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, so this is naturally a passage that is controverted between dispensationalists and covenant theologians. I think the plain read of this passage, uh, especially in light of the foregoing, we should read that, but that would take a little time. Read the 11th through the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, 11 to 22. And Paul is very clear that Gentiles and Jews have been united into a single body, where before there was hostility, actually, but not only between them, Jew and Gentile, and God, but also between Jew and Gentile themselves. And this hostility has been reconciled and put away by the work of Christ. They respond to that passage by saying, well, that's sure, that's within the church. That's, what we, that's how we talk when we're talking about the church, Jew and Gentile coming together in Christ. But that doesn't mean, they go on to say, that doesn't mean that there isn't a special purpose for currently unbelieving Jews in the future. That's not a plain read of that text either, but we're going to focus on 3, 1 through 6 right now. And the, what's controverted in between our two schools of thought is uh, that it was a mystery, they say, that Gentiles were to be included in God's saving dealings with mankind. So you'll recall that in dispensationalism, uh, Gentiles being in the kingdom, so to speak, at all, was not foreseen in the Old Testament. Uh, especially classical dispensationalism. It held that the church age, they call it, is really an afterthought in God's, God's works. That Gentile inclusion within the kingdom this whole church thing is a parenthesis. That God came, sent Christ into the world to offer the kingdom to his people. They rejected it. And in light of that rejection, which was not foreseen in the Old Testament, they hold, we now have the church age where God says, well, let's bring in the Gentiles, and then later I'll pick up where I left off with the Jews. Now, the New Testament seems to teach to, to our eyes that this was foreseen all along that this was plan A and that there is no plan B. And uh, the Gentiles were always expected to come into the kingdom. Uh, and this union of Jew and Gentile was the plan from all along. Uh, the church is not a parenthesis or an afterthought. It is, uh, as I said, plan A. So when we come to this passage, 3, 1 through 6, they say the mystery is that the Gentiles are being included. But is that what it's communicating? We hold that the mystery Paul's referring to is something a little more nuanced, I guess you could say, than that. Can anyone offer what they think the mystery Paul is referring to here is? If it is not that Gentiles will be included in the kingdom? Because we say it's, that's not the mystery that Paul's speaking about. Because that's been foretold. In fact, you find it all throughout the Old Testament. 
note takers. Um, the mystery, well, let's look at it. When you read this in verse 4, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the, to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Something was hidden. The apostle's job is to disclose what was hidden. He goes on to describe, describe the mystery. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. That's the mystery. Throughout the Old Testament, the nations, which is where we get the word Gentiles from the Latin, the nations are foretold as coming to the Lord. Various shadowy, typical um, ways, sometimes very plainly in the Old Testament. We'll see a little bit of that later on uh, if we have time. Otherwise, it'll roll over until next lesson. But if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you're familiar with that idea that God describes that the nations will come to him and worship him. All throughout the prophets and the Psalms. So, the mystery, Paul tells us, is that these nations are not just going to come into the kingdom in some sense, like the dispensationalist sense, but contrary to the dispensationalist read of the Bible, Paul tells us that the mystery that was hidden was that they are going to be members of the same body. That's the mystery that was hidden. So you could think again of Paul's picture, his metaphor of the olive tree. You have one single olive tree representing the kingdom of God, the people of God. The unbelieving branches among the Jews are broken off so that the Gentile believing, the believing Gentiles can be grafted into the one people of God. So that's the idea. That's the mystery that was hidden. That's the job of the apostles to reveal. That Gentiles are not only going to be part of God's people, they are going to be fellow heirs with God's traditional historical people, made into one. And it's a continuation of the thought that he is revealing in verses 11 through 22 of the previous chapter. He goes on to say, the mystery is this. It's my job to tell you this mystery. The mystery is that the Gentiles are the, have always been intended to be this part of the same body. And this was kind of veiled in the Old Testament days, he says, in as many terms. Any comments or questions about that? All right. Um, going back to the whole Amos 9 and Acts 15. Um, well, I have a question. Yes. But doesn't that kind of go to their idea of these different dispensations? Uh, you know, going back to the early times when they had like seven. Yeah. And that, as to how they just divided up scripture, okay, we can take this, this is one dispensation, this, and to be able to look at it that way, that to them I can see how it makes sense. Because that's that dispensation. It's not this dispensation. Yeah, I mean, it is a internally coherent 
thing, dispensationalism. I think it's consistent with itself for the most part. So, yeah, there are a tendency to divide, um, I guess you're saying, from the beginning of God's dealings with mankind, to divide that into various dispensations sort of lends to the lends itself to the conclusion that um, yeah, Jew and Gentile yeah he's dealing here dealing here and, and ways of salvation to, to a certain extent is that, and, and that's how funky it gets and, and how really uh, and, and I can see why it starts falling apart over the years because the more you dig into it the more you realize okay that that doesn't work anymore <laughs> you know it doesn't hold the argument just doesn't hold up and so when you look at these you look at it from the dispensation of this dispensation that dispensation you know the, of Israel where we say you know, these are just administrations of the covenant they're looking at just just totally separate instances within redemptive history of how God will, quote, you save you or deal with this and that and that and this. And then this would be the, you know, the, the dispensation of grace where God deals with the church. Yeah. And then he picks up later on. Well, yeah, after we're wrapped in. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that uh, when the ideas of dispensationalists first came out um, with the uh, Schofield Reference Bible, There were some classic dispensationalism was uh, it didn't have the rest of the church didn't have as much of a chance of, of course at first to begin to weigh all of the assertions of classic dispensationalism against the scriptures but over the course of a few generations and sustained uh, examination um, even the dispensationalists themselves have abandoned first one and then another of the pillars of dispensationalism. So it, I can't say, I can't say authoritatively how many, you know, what the proportion is of dispensationalists today. Do, are more of them of the classical variety? Maybe even John could speak to this. He's just, has got a lot of knowledge about dispensationalism. Um, or is it more of the, what do they call it? Uh, it's it's the, like the middle area of dispensationalism, the Ryrie Walvoord kind of uh, uh, progression from classical dispensationalism before we get to the next school of thought, which is progressive dispensationalism. And uh, so there's been a progression and a successive abandonment of various pillars of uh, dispensationalism, uh, classical dispensationalism. The more they encounter the critiques of the wider church, um, I think that the it is interesting that they're called progressive dispensationalists now, the latest school of thought. Um, because I think that means they're progressing towards covenant theology. They're almost there. But what they don't let go of is this distinction between the church and Israel. That's, that's the non-negotiable part that always stays the same, more or less. And I can't really say how many people are prefer or count themselves progressive dispensationalists today. I said at the beginning of the class that it is largely, to my, in my perception, an academic movement that most of the popular, the rank and file dispensationalists are probably either classical or uh, revised. I think that's the term that is used. 
the Charles Ryrie and uh, John Walford variety of uh, dispensationalists. I suspect the more rank and file are, haven't caught up with the progressive dispensationalists. In fact, they probably consider them compromisers and fence sitters. I think if you go into an average dispensationalist church, um, you'll find that uh, if they are a dispensationalist church, that they're probably in the revised area of the Ryrie. They probably read a lot of Ryrie and uh, Walvoord. Um, they probably don't even know what that word means. <laughs> it's probably... They, they wouldn't even call themselves dispensationalists. If they don't, well, if, if they do, they certainly probably don't refer to themselves as revised dispensationalists. I'm, I'm sure of that. Yeah, I was just going to, I think Chris hit it right on the head. It's, most of them won't know their own terminology. I think you've hit it on the head in that it's mostly at an academic level that it's turning progressive because it's only at the academic level that they're looking now at their own doctrines from a systematic point of view. Whereas if you're classical, you only approach the Bible from a biblical historical point of view, which goes to their interpretive method. They're, they're looking at it strictly from the context of biblical theology to say I'm starting at the beginning, I'm working towards the end, and I'm only going to accept what I see in the period that I'm in. And it's very dismissive, back to Chris's point, that they don't really understand a lot of their terminology because they've rarely been asked to prove the point that, that this class is hitting on. It's like, well, where in the Old Testament does it tell you to separate Israel and the church? That, that question is really never raised. It's an assumption that they pin to their interpretive method, but it's never proved. So it's dismissive that in most of the congregations, they'll stick with the age of grace teaching about Jesus and what we're supposed to do as a church. And everything else is just dismissed as belonging to another age or a dispensation. And if you're asked why the, the, the slap on band-aid is, well, because that's our interpretive method. But that's a, that's a circular argument. It's like the you know, argument that, well then, what's, what's that? Well, it's that Israel and the church are distinct. Where do you get that? Well, because it's our interpretive method. Well, what does that get you? <coughs> they would they would call this hardly, one of the key points I've stuck to some of them. It's like, well, most of your dispensations are written by Moses. He pens the first five books of the Bible. He then categorized the very five, the first five, six, depending on how you cut it, dispensations. So authorial intent. He somehow separated them. He had no consistency in his writings. What author does that? And, and it's a very sticky point for them. And again, the only people that address that are dispensations that recognize their doctrine and are willing to try to tackle it systematically. But then when they try to piece it together systematically, it leads them to be progressive. Yeah, and, and interacting with the critics. Yes. They think that there's two different ages. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what they're thinking. They don't, it's not dispensationalism. It's there's an age of law and an age of grace. They think there's two separate things. So attack, going, I hate the word attacking, but, but when you're debating someone like that, like when, I, when I'm debating my family, uh, the, when I go into something like that, uh, I can usually win them over on everything until I talk about Israel. When you get into Israel, 
then you, you're attacking their actual belief system and they will get offended at that point when I start saying that we are Israel. When, when you get there, then you're, then you're attacking them individually and that's when you get into fights. <laughs> yes, no question about it. Um, yeah. Um, uh, one charge that uh, is levied against dispensationalists is that they are, in, in effect, uh, antinomians. And that is because they say this is the age of grace. That was the age of law. So you can see how that lends itself to the interpretation from outside that that's antinomianism. It's one of the charges that they vigorously resist. We say, well, we're not. Uh, you know, we, we, but they, they tend to kind of say, well, we believe in the law of Christ, like Paul refers to. But there's no distinction in the scriptures that I can discern between the law of Christ and the law of God. So, um, all right. So, you'll recall that Amos 9 is talking about rebuilding the tent of David. It's clearly talking about the house of Israel in the Old Testament there, Amos 9, 11 to 12. Um, and in the Jerusalem Council, James applies that to the influx of Gentiles coming into the, the people of God as a fulfillment of that passage. Here's a, a quote um, from Robert Saucy's The Case for Progressive Dispensations. The application of Amos 9.11 to 12 by James is the heading of this paragraph. He goes on. As noted earlier, James cites this prophecy of Amos in support of Gentile salvation. The, that connection is seen particularly in James's statement in verse 14 that God has now was now taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. And his citation from Amos in verse 17 of all the Gentiles who are called by my name. But the question remains, he says, the question remains as to James's intent in quoting Amos. Did James, as dispensationalists have traditionally maintained, merely want to show that the prophecy indicates that God's plan ultimately included the Gentiles and that their inclusion in the church is in harmony with this purpose? Or did James understand the present salvation of Gentiles as in some sense a fulfillment of Amos's prophecy? Here's the, the money quote. A straight forward reading of the text appears to support the latter interpretation. So Saucy is saying, James is quoting Amos while he's discussing Gentiles' inclusion in the people of God. But what does that mean, Saucy is saying? It's a funny name, yeah, Saucy. He's a Saucy fellow. Um, what is James saying, uh, this, this, this scholar is saying? Is, saying? is James saying that, sure, someday, you know, this, the Gentiles coming in the church, how does he put it? Was he, did he merely want to show that the prophecy of Amos indicates that God's plan ultimately included Gentiles and that their inclusion in the church is in harmony with this purpose? 
Or did James understand the present salvation of Gentiles as in some sense a fulfillment of Amos' prophecy? See, that's what we say. We say James is saying, this is a fulfillment of Amos. We can look at that language again in Acts 15. Go ahead and turn there. Um, but dispensationally are saying, well, this quote from Amos is appropriate to this moment because, in a sense, it's in harmony with the thrust of that prophecy. But he admits, like what I referred to, the money quote here, he says, a straightforward reading of James appears to support covenant theologians' interpretation. Why, why did I think that's a money quote as I turned to Acts 15? Anybody know why I'm saying that that's the money quote? A straightforward reading of the text appears to support the non-dispensationalist interpretation. And that's because the whole point of dispensationalism, they say, the reason why we're dispensationalists is because we feel that How did Ryrie put it? Based on the philosophy that God originated language for the purpose of communicating his message to man, and that he intended man to understand that message, literal interpretation seeks to interpret that message plainly. I made the point that they're not interpreting the New Testament plainly. Robert Saucy goes on to say in another book, this one I just quoted from, that a straightforward reading of Acts 15 lends itself to covenant theologians' interpretation. I'm paraphrasing for clarity. So, a straightforward reading of the New Testament lends itself to covenant theologians' interpretation of these Old Testament prophecies. Even a scholar as prominent among progressive dispensationalists as Robert Saucy admits it in this case. Now on the question of you know what did James mean here? Did he mean that the eventual or how did he put it? uh, The question remains as to James's intent in quoting Amos. Did James as dispensationalists have traditionally maintained merely want to show that the prophecy indicates that God's plan ultimately included the Gentiles and that their inclusion in the church is in harmony with this purpose? sort of watered-down fulfillment, non-fulfillment, you could say? Or did James understand the present salvation of Gentiles as, in some sense, a fulfillment of Amos' prophecy? Well, the question before the Jerusalem Council was, you know, do Gentiles need to be uh, circumcised to be counted among the the sons of Abraham, part of the people of God? And obviously the question was, before them, it was on their desk, so to say, because of the Gentiles flooding in, uh, becoming believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and trusting in his Messiah. That was a very present thing that they were debating. It was a question before the church. Uh, 15 of Acts, and verse... 14. 
Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the prophets, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written. So, if you look at this passage, and you read it plainly, Robert Saucy says, and I agree, that the dispensationalist read here is not the straightforward, plain reading of Acts 15. Any comments or questions? Now, in this book that I'm quoting from, uh, A Case for Progressive Dispensationalism, by the way, that quote comes from pages 78 to 79 of that book, Saucy goes on to argue, as he and other dispensationalists do, when confronted with such clarity in the New Testament, they go on to say that the already and the not yet applies here. Which is true enough. We assert, we've been teaching the already and not yet fulfillment of the kingdom for for a while. So that's true enough. The kingdom, which, which includes, we are here told, Gentiles as well as Jews, is being inaugurated, but not yet consummated. So that's how we assert the already and not yet fulfillment of the kingdom. The kingdom has come. Jesus and the apostles proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom with the arrival of the king. But as the arrival of the king is a two-staged affair, first and second coming, the first coming we see as being an inaugurating of the kingdom, but not a consummating of the kingdom. There's an already sense in which the kingdom has come, but a not yet sense in which the kingdom has not yet come, such that Christ, who proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom, can teach his disciples to pray, let thy kingdom come, I would be done. So there's still a prospective future coming of the kingdom. It's not completed yet. It's not consummated yet. So we agree. We agree with that. But they they use that language in a very different way. Dispensationalists use that language, that concept, in a very different way. So Saucy then goes on to alter the meaning of the concept of the already and the not yet, to argue that in some sense, Gentiles coming into the kingdom is an already fulfillment of the Amos prophecy, but the not yet fulfillment of the the Amos prophecy is the Jewish portion of fulfillment as a separate and independent and even the true fulfillment of this prophecy later on during the messianic Davidic kingship of Jesus Christ at the millennium. So you see... I think I explained fairly clearly our concept of the already and the not yet. You know, scholars like Ritterboss and Voss and others have discussed that in great detail. They are taking that concept of the now and the later fulfillment and applying it to these kind of prophecies by Amos despite the clarity of the interpretation of that prophecy in Acts 15, for instance, and they're saying that the already and not yet means something different. The already means the Gentile part, called the church, 
And there's a not yet part, the real fulfillment. That not yet part is during the millennium when Christ comes to rule as the, as the king of the son of David, ruling from Jerusalem during a thousand year period called the millennium. So where we discern an already and not yet coming of a single kingdom ruled over by one king over one people or one shepherd over one flock as we saw from John last week. However, spread across two comings of the Messiah. And that in prophetic foreshortening these two comings, this nearer coming, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ being farther in prophetic vision looked a lot like a single coming. We call that prophetic foreshortening. It appeared to the prophets as a single event. They would often talk about the coming of the Messiah and the, and the day of the Lord, where you know Christ comes first as a meek person to put away sin, and the second coming as a judge to pour out his wrath upon the wicked. And prophetic foreshortening, those sometimes looked at at the same event. That's just how it was. That's how God disposed of these things. He would reveal it in the Old Testament in that way. And with the coming of the Apostle, of Christ and the Apostles, uh, we now understand that that's two events that to the Old Testament vantage point look like a single event. Once Somebody once used an analogy like sometimes you're driving, on, you're on a road trip and you're, you're driving on a, a freeway and way out there in the distance you see what looks like a mountain range. But as you get closer, you realize that the first peak you were looking at wasn't the first part of a range. It was one that was much closer to you. And as you go past it, you realize that the rest of those mountains of that range are off in the distance. It's like that for the prophets of the Old Testament. That's the foreshortening idea. So... We hold that the already and not yet coming of a single kingdom ruled over by one king and one people yet spread across two comings of the Messiah, and that in prophetic foreshortening appeared to the prophets as a single event, dispensationalists argue that the already is but the lesser Gentile gift of a kingdom, a kind of kingdom under Christ, at his first coming. Remember which the Jews rejected. While a fuller, literal blessing upon the Jews as the not yet aspect of the Amos prophecy remains to constitute the true fulfillment of it. Yet this is not in their way of handling it. Really, in substance, two kingships of the Messiah and two kingdoms, and not a two-phased fulfillment of a single prophesied kingdom under one king. Not only is this warping of the concept of the already and not yet complicated by the fact that the entire New Testament bears witness to the singleness of the one people of God, a unitary people under one king in one kingdom composed of Jew and Gentile alike, but dispensationalism makes complex what is in fact simple. In other words, dispensationalism by its presuppositions respecting two peoples of God and literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies creates an interpretive challenge in James and in Peter and Paul that is not suggested by the New Testament texts themselves. 
They even admit, at least Robert Saucy does in this instance, that the straightforward read of the New Testament works in favor of the covenantal position and against their position. The difficulty of interpreting James's handling of Amos only appears if you come to this text in Acts with dispensationalist assumptions. Come to the text by itself, and no problem presents itself. Saucy admits that. The inclusion of the Gentiles is the fulfillment of Amos 9, 11 through 12. If we allow the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament, if we adopt the Christian reading of Amos 9, 11 through 12, we have no such difficulty here or elsewhere. The difficulty arises only while trying to smuggle artificially literalistic Old Testament readings into New Testament texts that interpret Old Testament texts. Let's see here. Another point here is that dispensationalists are approaching Old Testament texts in such a way as to overemphasize the human author and human authorial intent and lose sight of divine authorial intent. This goes to something that John was referring to earlier, the authorial intent. And that point is that all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. And so every book in our Bibles, including those texts in the Old Testament, have both a human secondary author and a divine primary author. As we approach the prophets then, dispensationalists place such a premium on the contemporary understanding and intent of the primary author and his audience what they call grammatical historical reading, that they abandon the effort to arrive at the primary author's intent. If they respond that we have no way of knowing when reading the Old Testament what God's intended meaning is, below the surface, what is the response? The response is that in the New Testament, the New Testament reveals the primary divine author's intended meaning of Old Testament texts. Any questions for clarification on anything that I just read to you from my notes? You get the idea that we have one understanding of the already and the not yet, and they have a different, entirely new, novel understanding of the already and the not yet. The church age is the already... But when God picks up the program of dealing with his real people, the Jews, national Israel, at the millennium, that's the not yet. That divides God's people into two categories. You can see how that's consistent with, internally consistent with dispensationalist assumptions. But a plain read of the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament a plain read of our New New Testaments defeats dispensationalism so you have a choice are you going to plainly read the Old Testament or are you going to plainly read the New Testament now why is plainly reading the New Testament better than plainly reading the Old Testament 
If you could answer that in a very summary fashion, how, how, how would you do that? Why is a plain reading of the New Testament more vital to understanding the scriptures than a plain reading of the Old Testament? Yeah, I mean, let's think about what Paul was saying in Ephesians 3. He's saying there's some hidden things in the Old Testament. There's some mysteries that have been hidden until we, the apostles, have shown up by, by the Holy Spirit. Our job is to reveal the mystery. So if you're plainly reading the Old Testament, you're, you're reading an Old Testament text that the New Testament is telling you, church, that's couched in mystery. So if you're plainly reading the Old Testament, but not the New Testament. And in fact, importing your plain read, which runs contrary to the Apostles' read, and importing that into the New Testament, you've made a dog's breakfast. Have you ever seen a dog eat a breakfast? It's not a pretty sight. You're making a dog's breakfast of the New Testament. One of their scholars admits that the plain read of the New Testament is not our read of what's going on with the prophets. Yes? Because to me, and, and, and this is where that, you know, just for the quote, plain reading, I understand that the Old Testament's focus, you could say, is on from Abraham on and building up of Israel, so on and so forth. But there's too many anomalies. How do you explain from Adam and Eve to Noah and all those people uh, if, 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 if salvation was not for them as well? Or they were not a part of, I mean, why would God even talk to Noah? Because he wasn't, he wasn't an Israelite. And then, and then throw in Job and his friends. How did they know all this stuff about God and the Redeemer that was promised back to Adam and Eve? Now, it, it, even though it's, I can see their argument is the focus is on Israel from Abraham on. But there's these others in here that sort of point to it's not just them, it's everybody. You know, at least that's what I see. That's where I would take, if you go back before a lot of covenant and dispensational theology is formalized, one of the best readings of a plain reading of the Old Testament, which I think we need to steal back, is Calvin in the Institutes. It goes through a plain rendering of the Old Testament, pointing out in the, in the Institutes the consistencies and the non of the Old Testament, how it flows and how there's consistency, and then when there's discontinuity, where are the changes? But then he capitalizes on that in the New Testament to say, and then here's how the New Testament fits if you keep it in sync. If you read that and just say, I'm going to go with the, the discontinuity, then you're forced to read the New Testament differently. Yeah, and I should qualify what I'm saying, too. The choice is really a false one that I put forward when I say, are we going to interpret the New Testament literally or the Old Testament literally, or plainly, I said. Well, I think that the information, the data, is there in the Old Testament, but it's not always clear as clear, relatively speaking, to what's in the New Testament. How, 
Like, remember when uh, Jesus rebuked his disciples on the Emmaus Road? He said, you know, you're, you're, you're slow of heart and mind, brothers. You're not understanding the Old Testament. And then he takes them through the law and the prophets, and he reveals to them how that all pointed to him. So his covenant people had been reading the Old Testament for a long time, and they weren't dummies. Um, and they, you know just didn't fully comprehend, you know, that the Messiah must suffer. And it's probably because they were reading their Old Testaments a little willfully, you know, wishful thinking, because, you know, they'd been in exile and had come back to the land from Babylon, only eventually to be subjugated by the, the Greeks and then the Romans. And so they were kind of willfully blind uh, to what the Old Testament was teaching about the coming of the Messiah, the son of David. They wanted him to come and kick the Romans out. So that's what they were looking for. They were focusing on that far coming of the Messiah. Turning a blind eye to those texts that um, suggested that uh, um, he would come meekly and put away sin first. Um, but we shouldn't say that because there was a mystery in the Old Testament that this idea of uh, Gentiles coming to the Lord and coming into, into his favor was something completely hidden, because it wasn't. But what was hidden was their being fellow heirs with the Jews and, and being in the same body. Uh, any other comments or questions before we wrap it up? Okay, well, let's close with prayer, but um, let me see if I should... <clears throat> no homework. All right, let's close with prayer. Our scripture, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your apostles to reveal the mystery of the Old Testament, sent to clarify unto your people your gracious dealings with mankind. We ask you, O oh Lord, to help us to understand these things and to help our brothers and sisters in the wider church to understand them as well. Help us to appreciate the oneness of your people and the, the nature of the rule of this king you have sent unto us to rule as a shepherd over a single flock composed of Jew and Gentile alike who put their trust in him. We ask, O oh oh Lord, now that you would uh, prepare our hearts and minds to come before you in worship, help us to be in spirit and in truth, help us to exalt your name in accord with your will. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.